Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Welcome to Smarty Pants, the podcast of the American Scholar Magazine, sponsored by Phi Beta Kappa. I'm your host, Stephanie Bastek. These days, we all need a little escapism. And this episode, we are going to escape to a world we've never visited on Smarty Pants before. The world of political thrillers. Our guest this week is the New York Times bestselling author, Matthew Quirk, who went from being a reporter at The Atlantic to writing thrillers about government fixers and special agents. His latest is Hour of the Assassin, about an ex-Secret Service agent who tests the security around public officials to find vulnerabilities before the real assassins can. That is, until his latest assignment ends in a setup. Matthew Quirk's previous books have dealt with all manner of agents, from the FBI and special ops to con men and consultants. He joins us this week to talk about his approach to writing thrillers, how he's sometimes scooped by the outrageous news of the day, and what fiction of all genres has to offer us in dark times. Thanks so much for talking to me, Matthew. Uh, Well, it's a pleasure to be here. You are a writer of political thrillers, and as you've said elsewhere, sometimes it is a little bit challenging to be scooped by reality. And I remember, you know, reading interviews with the creators of political TV shows, both straight and satire, like in the wake of the 2016 election and since saying that they had to go back and radically reverse their plot decisions because they'd envisioned things that seemed absurd at the time and then have since become reality. So have you found yourself having to do the same thing with your thrillers? Well, I had the wild idea for a thriller about a president who was potentially compromised by Russia, which was a completely outlandish idea at the time, uh, sort of late 2015. And yes, I was halfway through the plot when the you know Trump-Russia scandal sort of burst onto the front page. I had started following it when there was uh, the yellow dossier and you know, the yellow dossier, you mentioned that in a news article. And as a thriller writer, my mind just goes crazy because it's such a perfect MacGuffin. That was some of the old Ukrainian evidence that came out against Trump. And uh, so at first, it's really exciting because you're on the news. You're really like kind of riding the news cycle. And then it gets to be sort of a white knuckle experience because once we send in the book, we then have to edit it. And then it takes about a year until it's published. So in that case, I was suddenly in danger of being caught behind events and 
there were a few late nights thinking about how to do it all, but ultimately I laid in some twists to add in a few more surprises. Uh, so it worked out well. There were a few of those really tense moments where you're wondering, oh no, am I going to get completely caught behind the news? But ultimately it ended up being a better book. So it's, it's a real challenge uh, and it's something where you want to be relevant and topical, but being ripped from the headlines is really tough when you're doing novels because they do have such a long lead time with publishing. It's kind of like driving an aircraft carrier. Right. And ideally a long shelf life too. So, I mean, how do you try to balance being topical with being perennial? You know, if you're dealing with present events, how do you make sure they don't seem dated if readers pick up your books 10 years from now? Well, I like to think of them as sort of a time capsule of a certain moment. So if it is completely enmeshed in the politics of the moment, that's fine. You know, I watch or read, you know, Hunt for Red October, or I've been reading a bunch of old thrillers set in kind of at the very end of the Cold War, and they're completely of their moment, you know, and they're centered on these countries that haven't been in the news forever. So that's just kind of what you go for in a novel like that. And ideally what lasts is the the drama and the characters and the tension and that sort of thing. So hopefully it's relevant now and it abides as something of a period piece 10 or 15 years from now. I mean, going back and reading old Cold War novels and thrillers, do you ever worry about like replaying the same storylines, maybe not, you know, specifically in terms of the plot twist, but like historically, in a lot of ways, it seems like, you know, that old adage about history repeating itself is really true. And I wonder if you feel the same way. Well, I'm doing a book right now that is sort of a blast from the past uh, Cold War plot. I mean, the central hook of the plot, this is the work in progress, is actually that there is a Cold War plot, i.e. kind of a Soviet plan that uh, was forgotten about, was kind of this doomsday plan. I won't get too far into the details. And some sleeper agents are aware of it, even if very few people remain who were aware of it. So what if they dust it off? Uh, So, I mean, for me, that's an opportunity. And there are, you know, there are trends in these things. So for a very long time, it was counterterrorism. And with good reason, you had 9-11. It completely changed everything. And everything was sort of a counterterrorism novel. In TV and film, you had uh, like 24, which was the counterterror show. And with Russia appearing now as kind of a nemesis, you go back toward more of spy, you know, spy intrigue and that sort of thing. And I really enjoy that. So I've been living in that world for a little while. And who knows what the face of things will look like in a few years after this pandemic. If people want to go back to uh, familiar villains, I honestly right now do not want to read a pandemic book. And I find something comforting about just an evil uh, spy master bad guy. That's that's the kind of villain I want to get my head around. Uh, so I, it's it's interesting to see that interplay between real historical events and then how they show through in the culture. Yeah, yeah. I am curious to see how the pandemic 
affects cultural output, I guess. I mean, how do you see political thrillers or even just fiction generally fitting into the crisis right now? Like, what are you reaching for? What do you feel like fiction has the power to do in this moment? Oh, it's interesting because we're also in a very wild political time. Um, so I, I can't really say. I know in my personal tastes and what I've been reaching for, like I was mentioning, there's there's something comforting about sort of classic villains. And I think that's the appeal of these novels at times like these where everything's uncertain you know, it seems like the government can't help you. Uh, it seems like the things you might rely upon uh, don't seem reliable and everything's sort of scary. It's a fascinating aspect of human nature that you still want to be scared, but you reach for books and films where there's a villain who you can sort of get your head around and is tangible and it makes sense. And then you're hero ultimately vanquishes them sort of in the simplest version. And so there's a lot of comfort in those right now. Yeah, I definitely hear that. I My weakness is British crime dramas, oh, yeah. which is weird because it's like people are dying. There's serial killers, murder, like bodies on the heath. And yet somehow because there's this arc, the plots are a little similar, but there's these differences. You know, it'll all work out somehow in the end. There is an end. Whereas right now, like... Who knows when this is going to be over? Yeah. And they're so bleak that you're like, well, at least I'm not in the north of England or something like that. Um, at least I'm not stuck in Wales. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, no, Wales looks beautiful. But I mean, they're, they're so bleak that I don't know. It's like I listen to old blues when I'm feeling sad. And I'm like, well, you know, I'm going to cheer up because it ain't that bad by comparison. And I feel like part of the comfort, too, is being able to immerse yourself in a world that's totally different. Like I imagine actual detectives feel differently about watching detective shows. And I wonder how you do that when writing your thrillers, because you're six books in, you've dealt with all manner of security forces and uh, like spies and lobbyists and whatnot. How do you build up that world? How do you, you know, create a realistic picture of these various agencies? Well, you don't as far as pure realism. And this was one of the most interesting things I learned early on in this. And it's funny you mentioned, you know, would a detective like to watch a detective show? Uh, they probably wouldn't want to watch the most realistic detective show on earth. Or, you know, it, it has a different value for different people. Like, you know, The Wire, a hardcore, well-observed procedural has a lot of value as like a social document. And I love those. But when it comes to thrillers, there's also this kind of special world that it has to feel realistic, but it's a heightened reality. And it was wild to me because I come from journalism and I worked at The Atlantic in D.C. for a long time. And especially when I started writing about uh, the military and I had some friends out here who did special operations work. I'm in San Diego. I, I really, out of a you know sense of respect, I wanted to get it right. I didn't want to be playing G.I. Joe with these stories. So I started just researching and reporting it out and talking to people who worked in those worlds and would want to write the most accurate scene and would say, you know, okay, if this sort of thing were going to happen, how would you do that? And they'd say, we would never do that. You would never have one guy on his own, you know, breaking through a window and going rogue to save the day. And it was really a funny long way around because 
by doing all the research, I talked to enough people and they said, just make it a good thriller and you're going to BS a little bit. And so I sort of had to do all the homework to feel that license to get back to sexing things up and heightening the reality. And, you know, it's it's really funny because I have friends who work in like super secret stuff in D.C. And they love spy thrillers. They have like a spy thriller club inside these, you know, three letter top secret government agencies because they also like that heightened reality, you know, because most most people's jobs, even inside top secret world, uh, are very humdrum. So it's it's really interesting that you can't do something where the reader will throw it across the room to say that's not realistic, but you also need to satisfy all the demands of, you know, action and moving it along and heightening the reality. So it's an interesting tension. You might have already answered this question by saying that, but I was going to ask him how you keep all the different agencies straight. You know, Hour of the Assassin has this freelance security guy and previous ones have dealt with special ops, the FBI, the CIA, Marines, a couple others I'm forgetting. Do you ever worry about accidentally giving like a special ops guy access to an FBI file or mixing up in some way? Or is that just like one of the liberties you're fine taking? That's one of the liberties. And there's always a joke with these things where it's like, there's three people who work at the FBI, you know, because something's going on and you have to reduce it down. You know, you can't be like, oh, that goes to the ASAC and then the SAC and then the deputy underside, blah, blah, blah. You know, so you all really have to boil it down and um, skip over a lot of the procedure because, you know, if if everybody followed procedure, you wouldn't have a thriller. You want to know the process and particulars because you want to have that feeling of authenticity, but you need to find a way to tell your story too. Have you ever had, uh, you know, a plot that you've written or made up or had some kind of twist where, you know, one of your pals was later like, who told you that? How did you find out? I think I have. I mean, what's wild is that if you, you, you speculate about something and then it turns out that that kind of happens in the real world. It's it's been really wild with politics of late because what I thought was really heightening reality in a lot of these books, you know, with like blackmail in Washington. And for me, always the moment where a thrower was clearly leaving reality in the political sphere was when people start having each other killed. And, you know, over the last few years, you've seen payoffs, you've seen safes full of blackmail material. You've seen um, what what inspired the night agent. The last book was a murder by Russian intelligence, sort of freelancers in a DuPont Circle hotel that I would pass every morning on my bike commute to work. So it's been really wild to me to be in this moment where thrillers feel on par with reality in a lot of ways. And the really over-the-top elements of thrillers you see in the newspaper and then you say, well, you know, what is the role for these books? And it sort of goes back to that idea of, of making sense of things when things feel like they've kind of all fallen apart. I mean, I wonder, I mean, do you ever feel like there are a lot of actual former spies and actual former security agents going out now on the record and, you know, telling their stories, writing memoirs, 
I guess this has been going on for a while, but I mean, do you ever feel like you're competing with the, you know, the true life stories of how things, you know, really happened? Well, it's really funny because I, you know, I was a reporter and I got to talk to and see a lot of cool stuff in D.C., but I don't have any special access. So or special experience. So it's just wild to me that that anybody wants to read my books. I shouldn't say that. Um, But (laughs) but it goes to show that, you know, the novel writing and creating that kind of heightened reality is its own skill. And uh, John Le Carre talks about this a lot of the time. He talks about how he feels, I don't know, maybe resentful is the right word, that people think he's just dictating his memoirs rather than creating this whole world as, you know, art. Because he does it so well, you think, oh, he probably just wrote down what happened after Kim Philby got exposed. But really, it's this heightened world. So I think it's wild that anybody wants to pick up my book when you can, you know, read a book from a former CIA person. Um, But on the other hand, in terms of national security, it's such a, it's such a funny phenomenon, because it is an incredibly closed off secret world, but there's so much interest in it, that there's actually an enormous amount of information available. And when I started out, I wrote more kind of crime like a little hint of caper thrillers. Uh, You had a kind of an ex-con man, ex-petty thief who becomes a Washington fixer. That's kind of the setup of my first two books. And it was really, really hard to find good, fresh information about how somebody would actually commit like break-ins and crimes and that kind of thing. But when it came time to write about special operations or the intelligence world, I thought it'd be really difficult, but there's just so much fascination with that. And there's so much uh, great nonfiction written about it that it's it's actually easier to do the research in that arena. Totally. Yeah. I mean, like when you're writing these thrillers, I mean, looking back at the past hundred or so, 50 years of thrillers, you know, not all of them have been, shall we say politic in their choices of villains or in how they characterize people do you like when you're writing these plots or figuring out like who's going to be the bad guy and especially given like all of the revelations we've had about the shady dealings of the FBI or the CIA with the American people do you ever consider the implications of who is the bad guy in your stories oh yeah absolutely I mean that's why it's nice to sort of get out of the counterterrorism moment because it was something that you saw, you know, with a lot of controversies about Homeland, where if you are attacked by uh, Islamic extremists, and then that becomes sort of the dominant um, theme in these thrillers, you, you have to be really careful to, you know, be very specific about what the threat is and not generalize it to, you know, a people. And, you know, after a while, it just gets uncomfortable to keep writing about terrorism and I mean, you see it with Hollywood and Hollywood often for purely commercial reasons has to be like very PC. So it's always sort of a rogue person. They'll change a story. So it's always like a militia or white supremacist because um, those are just solid bad guys that won't alienate anybody. And, you know, for instance, even writing Russian bad guys now, which is very of the moment, it makes it harder to sell to TV and film because Russia is such a big market. Um But I find this moment where you have a return to spy games between the U.S. and Russia and the U.S. and China 
to be much easier to write about thinking about making sure you're not um, stereotyping or vilifying people because it is peer-to-peer national jockeying and um, it doesn't map onto some of the stuff we all were very cautious about after 9-11 of kind of the clash of civilization stuff. I love writing about Russian bad guys because um, you you don't get into those thorny issues and you don't um, have to spend so much time kind of being careful about everything. Well, and there's like a long history of Russia being the bad guys, right? Going back to Le Carre and even further. Oh, yeah. What do you think your relationship is with these old thrillers? Do you see yourself in a particular lineage or writing with an eye to certain writers? Well, it's it's kind of funny because I'm in the, the book a year thriller game. I don't think of the lineage all that. But, you know, I'm like this year's story. Let's get it out. Let's tell a great one. Um, so there's there's less of these questions of sort of the anxiety of influence and the, the culture. Um, but. I mean, even that. Those those book a year thrillers are their own tradition. And it's really an honor, you know, to be in them. So, you know, I grew up with paperback thrillers with, you know, Michael Crichton and John Grisham. Yeah. And then there are the greats. And I honestly have no idea how they write books that are really kind of literary masterpieces and also incredibly satisfying thrillers. Um, So, you know, John le Carré is one. uh, Robert Littell is another these are just people I've been reading recently. And it's really fun to have a job where you can be in this sort of conversation across history with them. That's kind of a grand way to put it, where basically you're, you're riffing off of them. And it's, it's been a funny ride for me because I started in writing fiction in college and I just loved writing, but I really didn't know what sort of stuff I wanted to write. And if you write in college, they say, okay, here's a workshop and we're all going to do domestic literary realism because we're doing short stories. And I mean, nowadays it's much more open and there's less genre snobbery. And, you know, uh, Michael Chabon has done incredible stuff for crossing these boundaries as have a lot of other people. Um, But that's sort of what they encourage you to write because it's a short story. And I was just so bad at it. And it took me a long time to figure out that I was good at these cinematic thrillers that are action driven. Um, So that was my kind of writing journey. And that's what worked for me. And I was kind of honestly astounded that I was able to do it as a job and had some success with it. And I feel so honored to think that you know, everybody, they're going on vacation somewhere and they're kind of dropping me in their bag for the airport. Not everybody, that anybody would do that. And, you know, the the highest compliment I've ever gotten is somebody saying, you know, I was at either a, a military base in the middle of nowhere or a vacation house in the no- middle of nowhere and a ratty old copy of one of your books was there. And I just sat out in the deck or wherever and read it and escaped for a while because I mean, those are some of my favorite reading moments, just sitting down with a paperback somewhere with nothing to do and escaping. So it's really all about the story. 
We've got links in the show notes to Matthew Quirk's thrillers, including his latest, Hour of the Assassin. He also wrote an essay last year for Vox about how difficult it was to write his previous book, The Night Agent, when his formerly unexpected plot twists kept turning into real-world headlines. And in case your escape of choice dovetails with my own British detective series, you'll be gratified to learn that they're a favorite around the Scholar office, actually, so we made a list last year of our favorites. Also on our website, theamericanscholar.org. We'll be back next week with more talk about books. Till then, take care and stay sharp. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com.